Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. The Y chromosome carried only by men when compared to the body's 45 other chromosomes is very fragile. It's been worn down by millions of years of attrition and over time has lost thousands of genes. It's unable to exchange genetic material or repair itself because it does not combine with other chromosomes like the X chromosomes do. Our program begins with Professor Brian Sykes, author of Adam's Curse, A Future Without Men, explaining this degeneration of the Y chromosome. The Y chromosome itself has certainly degenerated uh, over the course of our evolution and that of most uh, mammals, really. It started off as a really healthy chromosome. It started off actually as an X chromosome and stuffed all the genes. And over the course of time, it's um, lost most of those genes. might have had 10,000 or more to start with. It's now only got about 27 left. Why such a vast reduction? Two reasons. First of all, that when our mammalian ancestors decided or it came about that they used chromosomes to decide whether we'd grow into males or females, in other words, they decided sex on the basis of chromosomes, then the chromosome that took on that job was, um, was doomed. It was doomed to be um, prevented from enjoying the kind of mixing that chromosomes do at each generation, uh, recombination it's called, and that process whereby chromosomes mix helps to heal the effects of mutation. But the Y chromosome over time has lost that uh, contact with other chromosomes and so can't heal its mutations as well as, uh, as well as the others. The other thing is it has a higher mutation rate as well. The Y chromosome does. The Y chromosome does because it's only ever... Um, surviving in the uh, sperm uh, cells and the germline cells of males, in other words, in male testes. And that's a very, very dangerous place for DNA to be because it, the cells there have a very high turnover rate. Uh, DNA is copied very, very um, accurately usually, but when DNA is copied, that's when mutations happen. The high turnover rate is because there are 150 million uh, sperm created in a healthy man every day? Precisely. It's got to keep up a huge turnover rate to, to produce that many sperm. And so the, the sperm of a, a 60-year-old man, for example, the DNA in that, has already been copied a thousand times. So you can imagine that there's ample opportunity for mutations to occur. So it's two things. The Y chromosome has deteriorated and is deteriorating because of a high mutation rate and an inability to make proper repairs. How long ago would uh, a male have had 10,000 genes on the Y chromosome? It would have been one of our mammalian ancestors, and it could have been as long ago as 100 million years. Well, then in our species, do you have a um, figure? In other words, how it is continually reduced to a smaller number? It obviously has reduced dramatically, and I think it still is reducing because we see those mutations um, occurring more often in infertile men, and it's, uh, mutation in the Y chromosome is a very common cause of male infertility. Something like 1% of men have mutations in their Y chromosome, which will make them less than fully fertile. I sort of predict in Adam's curse, uh, I, I think that it's inevitable that the Y chromosome will deteriorate eventually to, to nothing um, and lose all its genes. 
and the rate at which that'll happen is, of course, highly debatable, but um, judging by the present rate at which mutations cause infertility, then um, I think it's going to be gone in about 5,000 generations. How long is 5,000 generations in, in years? In that's years. something like 125,000 years. I've made those um, estimates on the basis of that uh, um, the fertility of males will have dropped to only 1% of its present level, and that's when I call it a day for males. And what would happen then to our species? Well, if we didn't do anything about it in the interval, um, then we would all disappear. Those species would become extinct. Well, there's two ways of doing something about it. One would be genetic modification, and the other would be a random mutation where, uh, as you describe in your book, it would be for the good of the species. Well, evolution um, doesn't actually work for the good of the species. It's, um, so I don't think we can, we can appeal to nature and the nature's mercy in that respect. After all, um, most species go extinct. The average life of species is probably only 100,000 years anyway, and the vast majority of species that ever existed have, are, are extinct. And, we you know, we're not so very different. The only thing, the only reason we're different is that we actually realize what's going on. Um, so what could we do? Well, we could rescue these important genes from the Y chromosome and put them perhaps somewhere safer. Um, and ultimately, in fact, we could probably reproduce, well, not probably, almost certainly reproduce without men at all. So that would be accomplished by taking the egg from one woman and fusing it with the egg from another woman, and the child would have been born from that fusion uh, would be a girl, but a perfectly normal girl if a few things could be overcome. Wouldn't um, that require an extra body process? Uh, a mechanical process? Yes, it would. It would. It would, and um, it would need to um, use the, the techniques which we already have for in vitro fertilization. But what's interesting is that I thought this was years away, but the week before last, some Japanese and Korean scientists did do exactly that with an experimental, experimental mouse. They took the egg from one mouse and fused it with the egg from another. Um, in a test tube, and then reimplanted it, and sure enough, a perfectly healthy female mouse was born, um, who went on to grow up and, in fact, have a litter of her own with a male mouse. So utterly normal. And I'll stick my neck out and say that in my lifetime, that will be accomplished for for, for humans. That we will have children born um, who have two mothers and no fathers. What do you think would be the uh, ethical implications of that? Well, uh, it's often confused with cloning, which, um, which it isn't. Uh, the girls would be perfectly normal. They'd have as much uh, genetic variability as any other girl. Um, so from that point of view, you wouldn't have any of the same um, identity issues that you have with cloning where you're producing uh, an individual who is genetically identical to someone else. Um, which I think is uh, the basis of one of the great, great concerns, the ethical concerns about human cloning, which, uh, from a personal point of view, I don't agree with. Um, I don't agree with efforts to try and clone humans. Um, but I wouldn't have the same objections to what we're talking about here, where um, the only difference between um, that the girl born in this way and, um, a, and any other girl would be that she had... To, um, to women as her parents. And I think um, it's highly likely that um, homo 
homosexual couples, homosexual women, lesbians will want to do this. They have children now, of course, but there's always the... Um, they need to involve men in the process at some stage, or sperm anyway. Um, at least currently there's that at, need. At currently they have to, and I, I would think that I wouldn't, can't see, foresee any tremendous ethical objections to having a child from that, that uh, lesbian couple where both of them were, were the child's parents. In your book, Adam's Curse, you pose the question, is there a gay gene? How yeah. do you answer that? Well, um, about 10 years ago, a little over, there was a, a, some scientific papers published and a great fuss made about the discovery of a so-called gay gene. Now, as a geneticist, that never made much sense to me because um, if male homosexuality was caused by a single gene, then I couldn't see how that gene had ever um, attained the prominence that it, that it must have today if it were responsible for the homosexuality of so many millions of gay men. Um, however, I do think there's a, an argument that there is a genetic um, connection with the male homosexuality, but it's not that there's a gay mutant gene or anything of the sort. It's because, in my view, that it's a consequence of a deeply embedded genetic struggle that's going on uh, between two sets of genes, one which is passed down entirely down the male line. We've talked about that already. That's the Y chromosome. And the other one, which is passed down entirely through the female line, that's the mitochondrial DNA, which was the subject of The Seven Daughters of Eve, a book I wrote a couple of years ago. Now, um, these two genes have interest in only one sex, either female, in the case of mitochondrial DNA, or males, in the case of Y chromosomes. And I interpret male homosexuality, uh, to cut a long story short, as a failed attempt by mitochondrial DNA to kill off male fetuses. There's some evidence that male fetuses, and certainly there's masses of evidence in other species, some evidence in ours that male fetuses are destroyed um, while in the body of, of, of the mother, of course, at a very early stage. And... There's evidence, if you look back at the original family studies that purportedly discovered the gay gene, you do see um, that the mothers of gay men had fewer brothers than they have sisters. And that, uh, too long to explain here, but in the, in the book I do that, um, that's evidence to me and to other people that um, the mothers of gay men were very good at killing off uh, male fetuses, uh, and that, the, the grandmother, I should say, of, of, of gay men, and that, um, again, taking a cue from other animals, it's, it's conceivable that um, male homosexuality is a failed attempt, in a sense, to do this, and that um, the, the, the sons are clearly are born, the males are born, the Y chromosomes are there, but male homosexuality usually means that those Y chromosomes will not get through to the next generation. When you say the mothers kill off the male fetuses, you're um, meaning a miscarriage that is not externally provoked. Yes, a very early one. The majority of very early miscarriages, um, often happening before the mother is aware she's pregnant, are male fetuses. And how do we know that? 
by uh, determining the sex of um, the early abortion. This week on Radio Curious, we're talking with Professor Brian Sykes about his new book called Adam's Curse, A Future Without Men. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Brian, there's different behavior patterns in men that you attribute to the Y chromosome. Can you describe what they are and and perhaps why? The reason that I've um, been researching the Y chromosome for several years is because I've been interested in what DNA can tell us about the human past. And during that process, I've discovered, and so have other workers, Y chromosomes that are extraordinarily successful. Um, I found them in in Britain. I found them in Scottish clans. Um, But I suppose the most extreme example is uh, a study done by colleagues of mine in Oxford where they found um, a a chromosome in Central Asia that was extremely, extremely common and tracked it back to none other than Genghis Khan, so here's a Y chromosome with which are 16 million, 16 million men in uh, Central Asia carry this Y chromosome. Currently, 16 million. That's right. Now, to any geneticist, that's a massive um, increase from only one when Genghis Khan was alive in the 12th century. And how was this accomplished? Well, it was accomplished by, uh, by his behavior. Though, um, and what he did, of course, was to conquer nearby land to slaughter the men and then to systematically rape or inseminate the women. Um, and that's how his Y chromosome got off to a very good start. It was that um, he passed on his wealth and his, uh, his empire to his sons and also his habits. And so um, generation after generation, the number of his Y chromosomes increased this massive number now. Um, so it's too far to say that it was his Y chromosome that caused this to happen, but it nonetheless reports what strategies men have used historically to um, assure that their Y chromosomes are passed on um, preferentially to the next generation. Wealth and power, property um, and status work very well for the Y chromosomes. Well, there's also some um, comment and, and some reason to make the comment that uh, the Y chromosome has trademarks of uh, greed and promiscuity, uh, aggression, violence, more so than the, than the double uh, X chromosome that women carry. Yes, I don't pin the blame on the Y chromosome, really. Um, that would be too simplistic. I think the Y chromosome doesn't necessarily have mutations on it which make that particular Y chromosome or the man that carries it more aggressive. It's really um, a a natural consequence of the very simple fact that our species is divided into males and females, females producing a rare commodity, an egg, once a month, males producing 100, 150 million sperm a day, clearly establishing a very straightforward supply and demand situation. And in order to make sure it's their sperm that fertilize these rare eggs, then men will do whatever's necessary. And one of the best ways um, historically clearly of, uh, of achieving this and passing on your genes, including the Y chromosome, is by being super aggressive, by being, um, by being a warlord in Genghis Khan's case or in other cases that I've examined by accumulating power and wealth. 
and status in order to do so. And you can still see, of course, nowadays that that, that those accumulation of those, uh, of those assets is uh, a very good way of, um, of attracting and ultimately of mating with, um, of, of mating with women, or the women of your choice, as it were. You can see it all the time, everywhere you look. In other areas of uh, male behavior, if, it, uh, can, if male behavior can be defined as such, the concept of the man being the hunter-gatherer, going out and, and doing the hunting uh, on, with other men, whereas women are um, more inclined to stay around the family unit uh, in the encampment. Do you see that genetically related? Well, that's a sort of traditional view, isn't it? I'm not sure whether whether everyone would agree with uh, with that. Well, that's why I'm asking. Uh, yeah, I mean, I I don't think I could say there's any genetic evidence for that, but it's certainly certainly the case from archaeological evidence that that was largely how our hunter-gatherer ancestors um, behaved. And um, and don't forget, we're an incredibly recent species anyway, and our modern way of life, our urban life, our uh, industrial life and even our agricultural life are uh, extraordinarily recent phenomena going back in the case of agriculture only 10,000 years and it's part of that hugely um, accelerated evolution culturally and socially that I think is driven um, to a large extent by the um, by this sort of sexual selection which gives males who do accumulate wealth and power and property an advantage over those males that don't. And that's what, in my opinion, um, not wholly but, uh, but to a large extent, um, has been responsible for these um, huge changes in, our, um, in the world and in our, in our lives over the last 10,000 years. Can you explain uh, sexual selection in a little more depth? Sure. It's a very well-known phenomenon in other species, and you know, we're only just beginning to realize its effects on our own. The classic example is the peacock's tail. The peacock, as we all know, has a magnificent tail, um, which he uses to attract females. The question is, how did that evolve? It didn't arrive just at once, so earlier, you know, really early peacocks would not have had these kind of fantastic tails. So the peacock with a slightly um, gaudy tail, would have attracted more than his fair share of females. Those genes would have been passed down preferentially to the next generation. And then mutations have arisen in those genes, and tails became a, a little bit better. That male with a slightly better tail um, was then selected by the females. And so it, so it went on. The, um, the sexual selection um, uh, drove the evolution of the peacock's tail, and it drove the um, and, 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 and it drove by female choice the tail to become more and more elaborate. So, in in the sense, I suppose uh, what what I'm suggesting is that wealth and power and status are the human equivalent of the peacock's tail. The only difference is that in the peacock. Um, it can't, the, the eventual size of the tail is limited by, uh, by the fact that the peacock's got to be able to fly, and if he can't fly, he's soon eliminated by, uh, by predators. But that's not the case um, with ourselves, uh, where the wealth and power, um, material accumulations, all, if you like, the, um, the equivalent of the peacock's tail, have no real limit, as we know. And the only eventual limit is the ability of the planet to sustain this uh, unstoppable ambition. 
Brian Sykes, uh, tell us about your Y chromosome test and, and what men can learn about ourselves and our history. Okay, well, um, the Y chromosome, we've been giving it rather a bad press here, but I'm, I'm not blaming it actually for anything. But it is, in a practical sense, extraordinarily useful for genealogists. And um, actually, I got really interested in the Y chromosome when I was able to show that uh, most people with my own surname actually descended biologically from just one man and the original Mr. Sykes, if you like, who lived about 1300. And that's been replicated. I've done many other surnames now and so other people in many, many surnames. So the association between surnames and Y chromosomes, which after all are past both of them from father to son, is quite dramatic. And it's being used now by genealogists all over the world. It's really revolutionizing the, the practice of genealogy. Um, to let people take advantage of this, I started a company in Oxford with the university called Oxford Ancestors. Um, has a website at oxfordancestors.com. And there anyone can um, have their Y chromosome uh, checked out and tested and compared with um, maybe people with the same surname to see whether they really are related. And it's really been hugely useful to genealogists to do this um, because it breaks through some the, the wall that many people researching their family history come to where the, the records have either been lost or destroyed. Here you can actually connect people up in different branches of the family um, with a very simple Y chromosome test. Well, on a practical basis, if my Y chromosome were to be compared to those of my three great nephews, yeah. um, what would I expect to see? Well, if you if they were directly connected to you through a, a male line, they are okay. Well, then your Y chromosomes should all be identical. Um, with the uh, unless there's been a mutation that has happened between the two, and these mutations do happen, they're utterly harmless, but they they happen at a, um, a re relatively slow rate. So if it's as close as that, then all all those Y chromosomes should be um, should be identical. Um, the value comes in the usefulness, the practical usefulness comes in if there are people who aren't quite sure whether. Um, relationship is established, aren't quite sure whether they are related, and then the, um, the DNA test will give an absolute answer. So looking at uh, OxfordAncestors.com, does that have lead people to be able to locate relatives who perhaps came to America and changed their name at Ellis Island, or their name was changed for them, so they don't have the, uh, the in your situation, for example, the Sykes name going back to the original Mr. Sykes? Yes, that's, that, that could be done if they had an idea of who they... Um, who they were related from, that can be checked out if they know whereabouts in England, for example, or parts of Europe that they came from. If there's any information, um, then their Y chromosome could be checked against uh, Y chromosomes from the places that they came from and maybe to get a connection in that way. And certainly, um, Oxford Ancestors working out of England has helped many um, Americans to track their own uh, Y chromosomes back to English, uh, part, to 
parts of England, parts of Scotland. Sometimes, for example, there are um, families, um, one springs to mind, the Lockwood name. The Lockwood name, um, American Lockwoods were never really sure which branch of the Lockwood family they came from. So we did tests and we found, uh, we identified that the Lockwoods in the, in the U.S. are all descended from the Lockwoods in Suffolk in England and not the Lockwoods in Yorkshire, which um, many U.S. Lockwoods thought they might be. So they could then concentrate their efforts to find a paper trail links to the Lockwoods in Suffolk. So how is this test determined? How are the Y chromosomes established or secured and then sent to Oxford ancestors? Uh, it's very simple. Um, anyone contacting the website, oxfordancestors.com, um, just asks for a, a kit. We send it out. It has a, has a small brush in it with um, customers that people can just take a sample of their DNA from the inner cheek inside their mouth, totally painless, and then that's sent back to Oxford Ancestors. Uh, the DNA is uh, fingerprinted, and the results sent back to the customer uh, within roughly four weeks. Is this information provided to any government agencies, or is it all strictly private? Absolutely not. I mean, it's all utterly private. The um, the the DNA is destroyed after the test, and the the results are sent back to the person that requested the test, totally confidential, confidentially, and never disclosed to any other third party without express permission. So, what would a person see if they uh, request the test and have the information sent back to them? Well, they would get a readout of their Y chromosome fingerprint, and also, if they asked for it, an interpretation of the ancient ancestry that that fingerprint disclosed. I'm now talking about whether they're likely distant, very distant ancestors, or maybe Vikings or Celts, Anglo-Saxons. That's if they'd been in Europe. Um, other parts of the world, we can recognize chromosomes from Africa, from Asia, and, and things like that. So that's an individual result. If you want to compare your individual result with other people's, then, of course, there's, uh, they need to be disclosed to the other person. But uh, certainly on the Oxford Ancestors website, there's a, an opportunity to disclose your, um, your Y chromosome uh, results if you want to and then compare it with, with other people's. But very often what happens is that um, people sharing the same surname but not necessarily knowing whether they are indeed related will, um, will apply together. And sometimes very large groups of people with a surname um, will do that. And we will then draw up a sort of genetic family tree which might define uh, more clearly than, uh, than was known before the different branches of the family. Professor Brian Sykes, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. And before we close, I want to ask you to tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately. Barry, I'm reading two books, actually. One called Mismatch by Andrew Hacker, who I met actually on this tour. And it's uh, subtitled The Growing Gulf Between Women and Men, a sociological book which goes into many of the things which Adam Kurse explores. The other book I'm reading is called Bergdorf Blondes. Its author... Plum Sykes, I discovered when I met her um, just recently, is a direct relative of mine, and that's been established by a genetic test, so that's why I'm reading her book. Professor Brian Sykes, thanks very much for joining us on Radio Curious. My pleasure. Professor Brian Sykes is the author of Adam's Curse, A Future Without Men. The books he recommends are Mismatch by Andrew Hacker 
and Bergdorf Blondes by Plum Sykes. Copies of Radio Curious programs are available. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.